0: Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 188. The end is nigh. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. You can find out more from the Knitting Out Loud catalog at knittingoutloud.com. Also, Knit Circus Magazine featuring three rings of knitting, sewing and fun. You can see more of Knit Circus Magazine at www.knitcircus.com. Also, Scribe Tutor, the online writing tutor offering personalized and convenient writing help for all ages. You can see more at ScribeTutor.com. Well, hello. So, uh, Knit Circus, by the way, has their new issue up. It has gone live at KnitCircus.com, and. I like the magazine. I have liked the magazine. But this magazine, this issue, this issue's really good. Really, really good. Go check it out. I am um, enthusiastic in my praise. And, you know, Knit Circus does not, not just the knitting thing, but kind of the sewing thing. And it's got lots of stuff going on in it. And because of something else that I'm working on for for the podcast, which I should have up by the end of Thanksgiving. I've been looking at some sewing stuff lately, and I found some things that you might find interesting. On the show notes, I'm going to give you links for some vintage knitting patterns, um, the Goodies la- Ladies book, which is, you know, from like the late 1800s. Um, I found all these things online available. Uh, There's a website called Sew Vintage, S-E-W Vintage. They have some amazing things there. An 1846 book called Exercises in Knitting. I just, I found all sorts of crazy useful stuff. Uh, I also found, this is back to the modern age, Uh, a tutorial on how to make vector graphics. These are graphics that can be enlarged and shrunk without compromising the uh, linear quality of that graphic. Lovely little tutorial using free software, not Photoshop. So I'm putting a link to that up. Um, Also, oh, a link that my husband sent me of the most amazing three-dimensional drawings I've ever seen. It's some guy in South America, I think. I was looking at this the other day. Unbelievable stuff. I don't think I don't think I can put one of his pictures on the site. Maybe I can if I give him credit and link backs. Anyway, I'll find out. One way or the other, the link to his page will be there and amazing pictures, sketches, like charcoal drawings, but three dimensions. I can't even explain it. It, Stuff is crawling out of the page. That's what it is. It's just so cool. Like the people who do those amazing tromloyal um, uh, chalk drawings on the sidewalk that look like, you know, the sidewalk has caved in and 2012 is here and their world is crumbling. So I've got links to that for you. I also have, I found a page called public domain treasure hunter. You know that all of the books that we listen to on Craftlit have to be in the public domain. That means they have to have been around long enough to no longer carry a copyright with them, and uh, and that's why we're able to bring you Craftlit for free. Which I know is kind of frustrating because sometimes you guys want me to do more modern books, but we're kind of we're kind of stuck. <laughs> and uh, and so I was looking around for public domain pictures, and I found this public domain treasure hunter thing the the sewing and crafting world obviously have lots of things that are in the public domain. Like I mentioned before, the vintage knit patterns and the Goody's Ladies book and, and all this stuff. Well, there's also knitting magazines and sewing magazines and books on both of those things that are well into the public domain. And one of the things that the public domain treasure hunter has done is, uh, whether it's he or she, I'm not sure. I have a feeling it's a she. Uh, I'm going to say she, just for clarity's sake. She has gone out and found all this stuff. And one of the things that she talks about is if if you have a blog and you are struggling to get enough or good enough content up in the early days of the blog, or even in the later days of the blog, and you've just been going and going and going if you go find articles that are in the public domain from a hundred years ago, go find stuff that's relevant and then either quote from it or retool it, you know, take the ideas and revise the passage and add modern information and modern things and modern tools. But um, there's this treasure trove of knowledge out there that could very easily have been lost, except that the internet makes it easier for us to go back into that public domain text and bring it forward into the 21st century. So I'm going to put a link up to a public domain treasure hunter sewing article that I thought was pretty cool. Don't forget, Fiber Fiction is up. Go read, go submit. I know many of you are writers and many of you are nano ing and things like that, so please go take a look. And uh, And how is your NaNoWriMo going if you are actually engaging in the insanity? So far, I am up to date on my word count. I've been very pleased with uh, with my ability to keep up in the midst of all the craziness here, but that's that's pretty good, and I know I know Brenda Brenda Dane on her last cast on mentioned her pattern for the What Would Madame Defarge Knit book, her Lysistrata sweater. Yes, if you aren't familiar with the play Lysistrata, gosh, maybe we should do that sometime. It's hard to find a translation of uh, ancient Greek that is. Uh, modern enough? And I know that kind of sounds funny because you think, it's Greek. How modern can it be? Well, if you're not familiar with it, Lysistrata is a brilliant play where the women of Athens have decided that the Peloponnesian War really needs to just stop. And the only power that they have is in the bedroom. And so, they stop seeing their husbands there i, I know their kids even small children listening so i'm careful and it's effective my husband i don't know 15 years ago did an updated version that he called sister strata and it was about uh a woman in the south during the civil war who perpetrates the same trick on the men with you know she and her friends get together and, and pull the same trick and uh she winds up being able to end the civil war before the Battle of Gettysburg, uh, frees all the slaves, gives voting rights to women and and all this stuff. It is a wonderful comedy that he wrote. He he writes really good women. And um and so that's that's always Lissa has always been close to my heart. And uh and so the I was very excited when brenda said that that was what she was looking into we have currently i think 22 patterns that are going into the madame defarge book and i am going through and editing and adding my text and working on my patterns and uh and huge thanks to wendy my test knitter who ran the um craftlet yahoo fan group which you know with Facebook and, and all that stuff. The Yahoo group kind of went the way of the dodo, which is too bad, but the Facebook group is doing very well. It's growing all the time, so very happy about that. Feel free to join in the fun. I have a couple more linky things for you. Oh, uh, one announcement. The travel logs of the trip to London Bath and Wales, those are on hold uh, for a couple of reasons. One, I was running out of storage space on my uh, my account. It's... It, the Craftlit Podcast archives are held online by a company called Libsyn, and they keep a certain uh, megabyte total of episodes current, and then they do a rolling archive. So, after something's been current for a month, it goes into the archive, and and more memory is freed up. But the travelogues took up a lot of space, and so I have have to wait another couple of weeks before I will be able to upload more travelogues. So, that's where those have gone. But the other thing is the Dickens of a Christmas. This is the uh, holiday blog hop that I am participating in with some some friends of mine it has begun officially so far there's a recipe for a Christmas pudding up there are articles explaining what the blog hop is and then there is let's see I'm starting, well, I've already started my, my pattern for a quick-to-knit fingerless mitt, much like what Bob Cratchit would have worn if he had had access to chunky yarn. Uh, it, is, it is up. You can make a pair of these in a night. Uh, as gifts, they are warm. I have been wearing mine because it's been very cold here in the morning, and uh, and it comes in two sizes: an adult medium and a child's medium. And then I have suggestions for how to size it up and down from there. It's uh, it is a really simple pattern. So if you have never knit mittens before, this is a pretty easy one to start with. It does have a thumb gusset and the first time you knit it you will be thinking and then it will all start to make sense and once you get past one thumb gusset everything else becomes easy socks become easier i think i did i did a number of mittens uh, i did i know i did the broad street mittens from knitty.com well before i did a, a pair of socks and it definitely helped with understanding all of that geometry. So that pattern is up and available on my Mama O Knits blog. But then the really cool thing is at the bottom of that page, the crotchette, I called it the crotchette. At the bottom of the Cratchette page, you will see a box and it's a, a program called Linky. And what it does is it allows us to link to each other's Blogs, so that for instance, if you wanted to, after reading my page on the Cratchit, if you wanted to go and take a look at the Christmas pudding, all you do is scroll to the bottom of the page and you see a picture with Christmas pudding underneath it. You click on that and you go to my Blog Hop Partners page that has the Christmas pudding. And then after you read that and you download the recipe and you print it out, then if you see one for, say, how to roast a goose, you can click on that linky link and go straight to the other thing. So once you start in the blog hop, you will be able to hop from blog to blog to blog, getting all of the Christmas goodies that we are posting for you. Um, And that leads me to a Christmas carol. Uh, One of the reasons why I decided to do a Christmas carol on Craftlet is, well, twofold. One as usual, it is not what we think it is. There's a lot more to it than we've seen in, uh, even the, the, uh, Alistair Sims version, which is quite good. Uh, so there's, there's that aspect to it. But the other thing is I'm also doing it for the blog hop. Now I will be posting on the blog hop versions of the, Christmas Carol audio that, that have me doing the introductions like I usually do, but it will not be a normal episode of Craftlet. There will be no links that I talk about, no anything. There will, however, be pictures. I will be posting video to that site, that will, um, if you watch it, if you listen to the audio, you will also be able to watch the pictures. I will be including, you know, relevant pictures of Dickensian stuff, but also um, I have managed to find, I think, all six of the original plates from the original book. So, that will be available, but then I'll, I'll be using that audio, the explanatory stuff, in uh episodes that are coming up, and I will then include all of the other Craftlity news and, and things for you links and, and, and uh, information. So you are more than welcome to head over to MomOwnIt and listen in that venue. Or, you know, just wait for the stuff to show up on Craftlit. Uh, I haven't chosen my other short stories for the season, but I'm, I'm working up some good stuff. And then uh, it looks like the woman in white is winning the poll now. So, you know, go vote. Craftlit.com. The poll is in the right side, sidebar. And I saw, uh, I saw the Craftlit show notes on Internet Explorer, and it's not normal. It's like the redheaded stepchild of the Craftlit show notes. So I'm working on that, but I understand that there's a universal problem with an old version of Internet Explorer. I think it's IE6. If you are still on that version of Internet Explorer, you might want to not be on that version anymore because it's not just my webpage that it's messing up. It's a lot of webpages that it's messing up. And you may actually be experiencing quite a bit of tsuris online if you're still on Internet Explorer. Um, Obviously, if you're on a Mac, you're not because Internet Explorer stopped supporting uh, the Mac operating system ages ago. We are all on Firefox or Safari and uh, Opera now. Opera is another new browser, which I like quite a bit. It's uh, it's been good to me so far. Let me see. I think. Oh, yes. The last big announcement. I was the recipient of a Tom Bin journaling bag. You may be familiar with Tom Bin bags because I know Amy Singer of Knitty.com is quite a fan and uh, and his bags are extraordinarily well made and sturdy and also, you know, quite attractive. Well, Tom Bin has come out with a journaling bag. That's the name of it. It's a journaling bag. It is a smaller bag than you might have been anticipating. And it holds, I think, uh, I think the paper is six by eight. Is that right? I mean, it's it's not eight and a half by eleven. It's lovely paper. It comes with graph paper, and sketching paper, and regular lined paper. It comes with two hard dividers, so you can have one before and after the paper, which uh, does a lovely job of keeping those pages safe and not getting you know wrinkled and crumpled. It has an extremely spacious outer front pocket that goes the, the length of the bag, and I, it doesn't appear to have any gussets or anything, but it's really very roomy, and you can fit quite a bit in there, and then on the inside of the okay. front cover, you will find um, little little pockets that you can put, you know, pencils in, and it goes horizontally, so you can slide pencils in. It comes with a ruler, Uh, it comes, There, the widths of those are different sizes. So like an eraser, you know, you can get everything you pretty much need in there. And uh, you could put a little Altoids hack of watercolors in as well. And voici, there you are, there is this lovely little travel bag for journaling and sketching and writing. And it comes in many, many different colors. I have the purple. I will upload pictures for you. I am so in love i am so in love with a bag it's going everywhere with me and uh, the boys have been getting into zentangling quite a bit and so you know when we go to a restaurant and we need to keep the boys occupied everybody gets a zentangle card and we all just kind of sit there and sketch and talk and have a good time and the boys stay calm and now i have this wonderful bag that we can take that carries everything 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 we need is right in there so take a look at the Tom Bin site, I'm, I'm, it's, it's a great Christmas present for someone crafty, especially if you're the kind of person who needs to be able to get stuff down right when you're thinking of it, because you're terribly, terribly ADD and you're not going to remember again. Heather, <laughs> it's been very good for me. So that is the end of all the intro stuff. Now, I know you already know this if you have, you know, spent the time downloading this episode. This is a long episode. This is way longer than normal, and I've been creeping towards longer ones because I've been, I've been reading your comments, and I know that people have been frustrated with Twain, and I know I addressed this in the last two episodes, but uh, I have been purposefully packing more and more chapters into each episode, and part of my revelation in doing this is that, you know, Twain's, Twain's running jokes span many chapters. And by trying to keep the show to you know something very close to an hour long show, what I was doing was I was chopping the narrative up in a way that it simply was not meant to be chopped, because he kind of has vignettes that go over a number of chapters. And, you know, I didn't catch on to that Early enough, so that was a, a bad mistake on my part. But I am making it up to you in these last three episodes. I hope um, we have we finished with uh, the the king being sold for seven bucks, the the king and the boss um, dealing with slavery, and that was that. Really, was Twain's last and final comment on the abhorrent practice of slavery. Uh, I read recently as i was doing more research a quote and it, it wasn't important enough for me to to write it down or link to it or anything but the upshot is this he actually said specifically that he chose the sixth century because it was distant enough and it was being mined for this kind of romantic chivalric attitude towards life this rom- this romantic notion um not capital R, lowercase r, romantic notion that, you know, they were n- the nostalgia for the Sir Walter Scott thing. We've talked about this before, I know, but there was another part where he said he, he specifically chose that because it was a, a perfect opportunity to destroy people's belief in slavery. And, you know, remember, he's, he's writing this post-slavery, post-civil war, Post Reconstruction, he was very angry at how badly Reconstruction went in this country. And for those of you who are not living in the states or haven't haven't gotten this this part of uh, United States history, the Reconstruction was what was called the the period where the South was being rebuilt, and it was largely being rebuilt by Northerners who really couldn't have cared less about Southern people, um, and and then the political system was being manipulated and it was being manipulated badly. And uh, you may know Spike Spike Lee's movie company is called 40 Acres and a Mule. And that is what slaves were supposed to have gotten after the war. The land was supposed to have been divided up. Every slave, former slave would have gotten 40 acres and a mule to be able to begin their own self-sustainable life anew, you know, in this freedom, and it didn't happen. And instead, you get into sharecropping, which is very similar to a feudal society. And and so Twain had seen all of this stuff kind of crumble, all of the hopes of what would happen post-war completely fell apart. And this is where you see him writing Connecticut Yankee and Huck Finn. Now, this this all becomes important because if you listen to any of Twain's earlier works— Tom Sawyer being probably the most prominent, Um, it's uh, Tom Sawyer and um, uh, Roughing It and Innocence Abroad, all of these things. They're very kind of upbeat, funny, hopeful, almost silly books. And people have uh, at times criticized Twain for being uh, cynical. And I think we've said it before, there is nothing like there is no cynic like a cynic who had started out as an idealist, and I think Twain is is very much in that camp. But I don't think it's cynicism. I think he and Dickens, and this is where the whole conflation of Twain and Dickens becomes kind of interesting. I think he really felt that by writing the satires that he wrote, the bitter and biting satires that he wrote later in life, that perhaps he could goad people into changing their behavior. If he made their behavior ridiculous enough, like Tom Sawyer is at the end of Huck Finn, or like the Yankee is in Connecticut Yankee, then the next time we see those behaviors coming out of ourselves, we will think twice and perhaps curb that enthusiasm a bit and be a little more careful in what we do. Well, that's where we're at in Connecticut Yankee now. We are about to listen to what some people call the climax of the book. Um, We've been waiting for this for a long time. You have probably forgotten that we've been waiting for this, but way back, many chapters ago, the boss was challenged in combat, jousting or whatever, by Sir Sagramore, okay? That comes to pass in this, the first of the chapters we're going to listen to today. There are uh, there are actually some things that I'm just going to have to talk about after the chapter because I don't want to spoil anything, but a couple of things are important. Listen very closely to the newspaper article about the challenge. You will be surprised, and you will be particularly surprised remembering this is chapter 39 when you learn this information. Um, but also pay close attention to the the logic um, that is used by the boss once again in his discussing how this all goes down and I'm I am going to break in in between the chapters because it speeds up you know the train is kind of poised at the top of the mountain and once this chapter gets going we kind of barrel downhill and I I need to break in in between because I don't want to the things that i have to talk about will ruin things that come later if i do it too soon anyway so here we go with chapter 39 of the connecticut yankee in king arthur's court the moment you've been waiting for even though you forgot <laughs> the duel with sir Sagramore.
1: chapter 39 the yankees fight with the knights home again at camelot A morning or two later I found the paper, damp from the press, by my plate at the breakfast-table. I turned to the advertising columns, knowing I should find something of personal interest to me there. It was this. De par le roi. Know that the great lord and illustrious knight, Sir Sagramore le Desirous, having condescended to meet the king's minister, Hank Morgan, the which is surnamed the Boss, For satisfaction of offence anciently given, these will engage in the lists by Camelot about the fourth hour of the morning of the sixteenth day of this next succeeding month. The battle will be one outrance, sith the said offence was of a deadly sort, admitting of no composition. Clarence's editorial reference to this affair was to this effect. IT WILL BE OBSERVED BY A GLANCE AT OUR ADVERTISING COLUMNS THAT THE COMMUNITY IS TO BE FAVORED WITH A TREAT OF UNUSUAL INTEREST IN THE TOURNAMENT LINE. THE NAMES OF THE ARTISTS ARE WARRANT OF GOOD ENTERTAINMENT. THE BOX OFFICE WILL BE OPEN AT NOON OF THE THIRTEENTH. ADMISSION THREE CENTS. RESERVED SEATS FIVE. PROCEEDS TO GO TO THE HOSPITAL FUND. THE ROYAL PAIR AND ALL THE COURT WILL BE PRESENT. With these exceptions, and the press and the clergy, the free list is strictly suspended. Parties are hereby warned against buying tickets of speculators. They will not be good at the door. Everybody knows and likes the boss. Everybody knows and likes Sir Sag. Come, let us give the lads a good send-off. Remember, the proceeds go to a great and free charity.' and one whose broad benevolence stretches out its helping hand, warm with the blood of a loving heart, to all that suffer, regardless of race, creed, condition, or color, the only charity yet established in the earth, which has no politico-religious stopcock on its compassion, but says, "'Here flows the stream, let all come and drink,' Turn out, all hands. Fetch along your doughnuts and your gumdrops and have a good time. Pie for sale on the grounds and rocks to crack it with. And circus lemonade, three drops of lime juice to a barrel of water. N.B. This is the first tournament under the new law, which allow each combatant to use any weapon he may prefer. You may want to make a note of that. Up to the day set there was no talk in all britain of anything but this combat all other topics sank into insignificance and passed out of men's thoughts and interest it was not because a tournament was a great matter it was not because sir sagramore had found the holy grail for he had not but had failed it was not because the second official personage in the kingdom was one of the duelists no all these features were commonplace yet there was abundant reason for the extraordinary interest which this coming fight was creating. It was born of the fact that all the nation knew that this was not to be a duel between mere men, so to speak, but a duel between two mighty magicians, a duel not of muscle, but of mind, not of human skill, but of superhuman art and craft, a final struggle for supremacy between the two master enchanters of the age." it was realized that the most prodigious achievements of the most renowned knights could not be worthy of comparison with a spectacle like this they could be but child's play contrasted with this mysterious and awful battle of the gods yes all the world knew it was going to be in reality a duel between merlin and me a measuring of his magic powers against mine it was known that merlin had been busy whole days and nights together imbuing Sir Sagramore's arms and armor with supernal powers of offense and defense, and that he had procured for him, from the spirits of the air, a fleecy veil, which would render the wearer invisible to his antagonist, while still visible to other men. Against Sir Sagramore, so weaponed and protected, a thousand knights could accomplish nothing. Against him no known enchantments could prevail. These facts were sure— "'Regarding them, there was no doubt, no reason for doubt. "'There was but one question. "'Might there be still other enchantments unknown to Merlin "'which could render Sir Sagramore's veil transparent to me "'and make his enchanted mail vulnerable to my weapons? "'This was the one thing to be decided in the lists. "'Until then the world must remain in suspense. "'So the world thought there was a vast matter at stake here, "'and the world was right.' but it was not the one they had in their minds. No, a far vaster one was upon the cast of this die, the life of knight-errantry. I was a champion, it was true, but not the champion of the frivolous black arts. I was the champion of hard, unsentimental common sense and reason. I was entering the lists to either destroy knight-errantry or be its victim.' Vast as the show grounds were, there were no vacant spaces in them outside of the lists, at ten o'clock on the morning of the sixteenth. The mammoth grandstand was clothed in flags, streamers, and rich tapestries, and packed with several acres of small-fried tributary kings, their suites, and the British aristocracy. With our own royal gang in the chief place, and each and every individual a flashing prism of gaudy silks and velvets, well— I never saw anything to begin with it but a fight between an upper Mississippi sunset and the Aurora Borealis. The huge camp of beflagged and gay-colored tents at one end of the lists, with a stiff-standing sentinel at every door and a shining shield, hanging by him for challenge, was another fine sight. You see, every knight was there who had any ambition or any caste feeling— for my feeling toward their order was not much of a secret, and so here was their chance. If I won my fight with Sir Sagramore, others would have the right to call me out, as long as I might be willing to respond. Down at our end there were but two tents, one for me, and another for my servants. At the appointed hour the king made a sign, and the heralds in their tabards appeared and made proclamation, naming the combatants and stating the cause of quarrel. There was a pause, than a ringing bugle-blast, which was the signal for us to come forth. All the multitude caught their breath, and an eager curiosity flashed into every face. Out from his tent rode great Sir Sagramore, an imposing tower of iron, stately and rigid, his huge spear standing upright in its socket, and grasped in his strong hand, his grand horse's face, and breast cased in steel, his body clothed in rich trappings that almost dragged the ground. Oh, a most noble picture! A great shout went up of welcome and admiration. And then out I came. But I didn't get any shout. There was a wondering and eloquent silence for a moment. Then a great wave of laughter began to sweep along that human sea. But a warning bugle-blast cut its career short. I was in the simplest and comfortblest of gymnast costumes— flesh-colored tights from neck to heel, with blue silk puffings about my loins, and bare-headed. My horse was not above medium size, but he was alert, slender-limbed, muscled with watch-springs, and just a greyhound to go. He was a beauty, glossy as silk, and naked as he was when he was born, except for bridle and ranger-saddle. The iron tower and the gorgeous bed-quilt came cumbrously, but gracefully, pirouetting down the lists, and we tripped lightly up to meet them we halted the tower saluted i responded then we wheeled and rode side by side to the grandstand and faced our king and queen to whom we made obeisance the queen exclaimed alack sir boss wilt fight naked and without lance or sword or but the king checked her and made her understand with a polite phrase or two that this was none of her business the bugles rang again and we separated and rode to the ends of the lists and took position now old Merlin stepped into view, and cast a dainty web of gossamer threads over Sir Sagramor, which turned him into Hamlet's ghost. The king made a sign, the bugles blew, Sir Sagramor laid his great lance in rest, and the next moment here he came thundering down the course with his veil flying out behind, and I went whistling through the air like an arrow to meet him, cocking my ear the while, as if noting the invisible knight's position and progress by hearing, not sight— A chorus of encouraging shouts burst out for him, and one brave voice flung out a heartening word for me, said, "'Go it, Slim Jim!' It was an even bet that Clarence had procured that favor for me, and furnished the language, too. When that formidable lance-point was within a yard and a half of my breast, I twitched my horse aside without an effort, and the big knight swept by, scoring a blank. I got plenty of applause that time— "'We turned, braced up, and down we came again. "'Another blank for the night, a roar of applause for me. "'This same thing was repeated once more, "'and it fetched such a whirlwind of applause "'that Sir Sagramore lost his temper "'and at once changed his tactics "'and set himself the task of chasing me down. "'Why, he hadn't any show in the world at that. "'It was a game of tag, with all the advantage on my side. "'I whirled out of his path with ease whenever I chose, "'and once I slapped him on the back as I went to the rear.' Finally, I took the chase into my own hands, and after that, turn or twist or do what he would, he was never able to get behind me again. He found himself always in front at the end of his maneuver. So he gave up that business and retired to his end of the lists. His temper was clear gone now, and he forgot himself and flung an insult at me which disposed of mine. I slipped my lasso from the horn of my saddle and grasped the coil in my right hand. This time you should have seen him come.' It was a business trip, sure. By his gait there was blood in his eye. I was sitting my horse at ease, and swinging the great loop of my lasso in wide circles about my head. The moment he was under way I started for him. When the space between us had narrowed to forty feet, I sent the snaky spirals of the rope a-cleaving through the air, then darted aside and faced about, and brought my trained animal to a halt with all his feet braced under him for a surge— The next moment the rope sprang taut and yanked Sir Sagramore out of the saddle. Great Scott! But there was a sensation! Unquestionably, the popular thing in this world is novelty. These people had never seen anything of that cowboy business before, and it carried them clear off their feet with delight. From all around and everywhere the shout went up, "'Encore! Encore!' I wondered where they got the word, but there was no time to cipher on philological matters, because the whole night-errantry hive was just humming now, and my prospect for trade couldn't have been better. The moment my lasso was released, and Sir Sagramore had been assisted to his tent, I hauled in the slack, took my station, and began to swing my loop around my head again. I was sure to have use for it as soon as they could elect a successor for Sir Sagramore, and that couldn't take long, or there were so many hungry candidates— "'Indeed they elected one straight off—Sir Hervis the Revel. Bzz! "'Here he came, like a house of fire. "'I dodged. "'He passed like a flash, with my horsehair coils settling around his neck. "'A second or so later—' the "'His saddle was empty. "'I got another encore, and another, and another, and still another. "'When I had snaked five men out, things began to look serious to the ironclads, "'and they stopped and consulted together—' As a result they decided that it was time to waive etiquette and send their greatest and best against me. To the astonishment of that little world I lassoed Sir Lamorak de Galis, and after him Sir Galahad. So you see there was simply nothing to be done now but play their right bower, bring out the superbest of the superb, the mightiest of the mighty, the great Sir Lancelot himself. A proud moment for me? I should think so.' Yonder was Arthur, king of Britain. Yonder was Guinevere, yes, and whole tribes of little provincial kings and kinglets, and in the tented camp yonder renowned knights from many lands, and likewise the selectest body known to chivalry, the knights of the table round, the most illustrious in Christendom. And biggest fact of all, the very sun of their shining system was yonder couching his lance, the focal point of forty thousand adoring eyes— and all by myself here was I laying for him. Across my mind flitted the dear image of a certain hello-girl of West Hartford, and I wish she could see me now. In that moment down came the invincible with the rush of a whirlwind. The courtly world rose to its feet and bent forward. The fateful coils went circling through the air, and before you could wink, I was towing Sir Lancelot across the field on his back, and kissing my hand to the storm of waving kerchiefs and the thunder crash of applause that greeted me. Said I to myself, as I coiled my lariat and hung it on my saddle-horn and sat there drunk with glory, "'The victory is perfect! No other will venture against me. Night air-entry is dead!' Now imagine my astonishment, and everybody else's, too, to hear the peculiar bugle-call which announces that another competitor is about to enter the lists.' There was a mystery here. I couldn't account for this thing. Next I noticed Merlin gliding away from me, and then I noticed that my lasso was gone. The old sleight-of-hand expert had stolen it, sure, and slipped it under his robe. The bugle blew again. I looked, and down came Sagramor riding again with his dust brushed off and his veil nicely rearranged. I trotted up to meet him and pretended to find him by the sound of his horse's hoofs. He said, "'Thou art quick of ear, but it will not save thee from this.' And he touched the hilt of his great sword. "'And ye are not able to see it, because of the influence of the veil. Know that it is no cumbrous lance, but a sword, and I ween ye will not be able to avoid it.' His visor was up, and there was death in his smile. I should never be able to dodge his sword. That was plain. Somebody was going to die this time. If he got the drop on me, I could name the corpse.' we rode forward together and saluted the royalties this time the king was disturbed he said where is thy strange weapon it is stolen sire hast another at hand no sire i brought only the one then merlin mixed in he brought but the one because there was but the one to bring there exists none other but that one it belongeth to the king of the demons of the sea this man is a pretender and ignorant else he had known that that weapon can be used in but eight bouts only and then it vanisheth away to its home under the sea then he is weaponless said the king sir sagramor ye will grant him leave to borrow and i will lend said sir lancelot limping up he is as brave a knight of his hands as any that be on live and he shall have mine he put his hand on his sword to draw it but sir sagramor said "'Stay, it may not be. "'He shall fight with his own weapons. "'It was his privilege to choose them and bring them. "'If he has erred, on his head be it.' Knight said the king, "'thou art overwrought with passion. "'It disorders thy mind. "'Wouldst kill a naked man?' and he do it, he shall answer to me,' said Sir Lancelot. "'I will answer it to any he that desireth,' retorted Sir Sagramore hotly. Merlin broke in, rubbing his hands and smiling his low, down a smile of malicious gratification. "'Tis well said! right well said! and tis enough of parleying! Let my lord the king deliver the battle-signal!' The king had to yield. The bugle made proclamation, and we turned apart and rode to our stations. There we stood a hundred yards apart, facing each other, rigid and motionless, like horsed statues. And so we remained in a soundless hush, as much as a full minute— "'everybody gazing, nobody stirring. "'It seemed as if the king could not take heart to give the signal. "'But at last he lifted his hand, the clear note of the bugle followed. "'Sir Sagramore's long blade described a flashing curve in the air, "'and it was superb to see him come. "'I sat still. "'On he came. I did not move. "'People got so excited that they shouted to me, "'Fly, fly, save thyself! This is Murther!" I never budged so much as an inch till that thundering apparition had got within fifteen paces of me. Then I snatched a dragoon revolver out of my holster. There was a flash and a roar, and the revolver was back in the holster before anybody could tell what had happened. Here was a riderless horse plunging by, and yonder lay Sir Sagramore, stone dead. The people that ran to him were stricken dumb to find that the life was actually gone out of the man, and no reason for it visible— no hurt upon his body, nothing like a wound. There was a hole through the breast of his chain-mail, but they attached no importance to a little thing like that, and as a bullet wound there produces but little blood, none came in sight because of the clothing and swaddlings under the armor. The body was dragged over to let the king and the swells look down upon it. They were stupefied with astonishment, naturally. I was requested to come and explain the miracle, but I remained in my tracks like a statue and said— "'If it is a command, I will come, but my lord the king knows that I am where the laws of combat require me to remain while any desire to come against me.' I waited. Nobody challenged. Then I said, "'If there are any who doubt that this field is well and fairly won, I do not wait for them to challenge me. I challenge them.' It is a gallant offer, said the king, and well beseems you. Whom will you name first? I name none, I challenge all. Here I stand, and dare the chivalry of England to come against me, not by individuals, but in mass. What? shouted a score of knights. You have heard the challenge. Take it, or— I proclaim you recreant knights and vanquished, every one! It was a bluff, you know. At such a time, it is sound judgment to put on a bold face and play your hand for a hundred times what it is worth. Forty-nine times out of fifty, nobody dares to call, and you rake in the chips. But just this once, well, things looked squally. In just no time, five hundred knights were scrambling into their saddles, and before you could wink... A widely scattering drove were under way and clattering down upon me. I snatched both revolvers from the holsters and began to measure distances and calculate chances. Bang! one saddle empty. Bang! another one. Bang! bang! and a bag too. Well, it was nip and tuck with us, and I knew it. If I spent the eleventh shot without convincing these people, the twelfth man would kill me, sure.' "'and so I never did feel so happy as I did "'when my ninth downed its man "'and I detected the wavering in the crowd "'which was premonitory of panic. "'An instant lost now could knock out my last chance. "'But I didn't lose it. "'I raised both revolvers and pointed them. "'The halted host stood their ground "'just about one good square moment, "'then broke and fled. "'The day was mine. "'Night Errantry was a doomed institution.' the march of civilization was begun. How did I feel? Ah, you never could imagine it. And Br'er Merlin? His stock was flat again. Somehow, every time the magic of Falderall tried conclusions with the magic of science, the magic of Falderall got left. End of chapter thirty-nine Okay, language-wise, I'm like I said, I'm going to deal
0: with this more in a later episode, but for now, uh, when he says Br'er Merlin, what he is hearkening back to is an old set of stories that were uh, oral tradition stories that were eventually written down called the Uncle Remus stories in the, tw- the 20th century, anyway, and uh, instead of saying Brother Rabbit or Brother Bear, it was Br'er Rabbit and Br'er Bear, and by reducing Merlin to a character in a fable, by calling him Brer Merlin, um, it's just another insult to Merlin. So, we now have witnessed Hank Morgan, because that's his name. We had to wait until chapter 39. We witnessed Hank Morgan uh, ending chivalry, really. Now, in a situation like this where the name of the main character has been withheld this long it is a a harbinger of a massive change in the narrative that when when a change that significant happens this late something is going on and even though the image of him lassoing sir Sagramore with a rope and pulling him off the horse is it kind of funny in a slapstick sort of way and you know standing up against 500 knights with two pistols um is is a, a rather brave if completely reckless and insane thing to do um it shouldn't be lost on you that even though he won part of the reason that he won is because the people were superstitious about the type of weapon he was using and so it it still isn't reason that has triumphed it's just a different trick Uh, it should also be noted that in the middle of all of this Sir Lancelot is um, still quite a lovely character and is he, he actually tries to get Hank Morgan out of the situation that he finds himself in and and you know, acquiesces very gallantly to uh, having been bested in a fight. You may remember that in a, a long ago chapter, one of the knights, I don't remember who, uh, unseated or came close to unseating Lancelot, and his entire reputation as a good knight was based on having been able to do just that much. So, winning against Lancelot was huge. Well, now, as we head into chapter 40, uh, a, a great deal of time has passed, and quite a few changes have happened in the life of Hank Morgan and in the life of England. And I'm not going to say any more, except listen very closely to all of the changes that have been made to society by Hank Morgan, but also hear his his further plans the other things he's planning to do because it's it's really quite interesting where he's going and you know remember this was published in 1889
1: okay i'm just leaving you with that okay here we go chapter 40 three years later when i broke the back of knight errantry that time i no longer felt obliged to work in secret so the very next day I exposed my hidden schools, my mines, and my vast system of clandestine factories and workshops to an astonished world. That is to say, I exposed the nineteenth century to the inspection of the sixth. Well, it is always a good plan to follow up an advantage promptly. The knights were temporarily down, but if I would keep them so, I must just simply paralyze them. Nothing short of that would answer.' You see, I was bluffing that last time in the field. It would be natural for them to work around to that conclusion if I gave them a chance, so I must not give them time, and I didn't. I renewed my challenge, engraved it on brass, posted it up where any priest could read it to them, and also kept it standing in the advertising columns of the paper.' I not only renewed it, but added to its proportions. I said, name the day, and I would take fifty assistants and stand up against the massed chivalry of the whole earth and destroy it. I was not bluffing this time. I meant what I said. I could do what I promised. There wasn't any way to misunderstand the language of that challenge. Even the dullest of the chivalry perceived that this was a plain case of put up or shut up. They were wise, and did the latter." in all the next three years they gave me no trouble worth mentioning consider the three years sped now look around on england a happy and prosperous country and strangely altered schools everywhere and several colleges a number of pretty good newspapers even authorship was taking a start sir dinadan the humorist was first in the field with a volume of gray headed jokes which i had been familiar with during thirteen centuries If he had left out that old rancid one about the lecturer, I wouldn't have said anything, but I couldn't stand that one. I suppressed the book and hanged the author. Slavery was dead and gone. All men were equal before the law. Taxation had been equalized. The telegraph, the telephone, the phonograph, the typewriter, the sewing machine, and all the thousand willing and handy servants of steam and electricity were working their way into favor.' we had a steamboat or two on the Thames, we had steam warships, and the beginnings of a steam commercial marine. I was getting ready to send out an expedition to discover America. We were building several lines of railway, and our line from Camelot to London was already finished and in operation. I was shrewd enough to make all offices connected with the passenger service places of high and distinguished honor.' My idea was to attract the chivalry and nobility, and make them useful, and keep them out of mischief. The plan worked very well. The competition for the places was hot. The conductor of the 433 Express was a duke. There wasn't a passenger conductor on the line below the degree of earl. They were good men, every one. But they had two defects which I couldn't cure, so had to wink at. They wouldn't lay aside their armor— and they would knock down fair, I mean, rob the company. There was hardly a knight in all the land who wasn't in some useful employment. They were going from end to end of the country in all manner of useful missionary capacities. Their penchant for wandering and their experience in it made them altogether the most effective spreaders of civilization we had. They went clothed in steel and equipped with sword and lance and battle-axe, and if they couldn't persuade a person to try a sewing machine on the installment plan, or a melodeon, or a barbed-wire fence, or a Prohibition journal, or any of the other thousand-and-one things they canvassed for, they removed him and passed on. I was very happy. Things were working steadily toward a secretly longed-for point. You see, I had two schemes in my head which were the vastest of all my projects— The one was to overthrow the Catholic Church and set up the Protestant faith on its ruins, not as an established church, but a go-as-you-please one, and the other project was to get a decree issued by-and-by, commanding that upon Arthur's death unlimited suffrage should be introduced, and given to men and women alike, at any rate to all men, wise or unwise, and to all mothers who at middle age should be found to know nearly as much as their sons at twenty-one, Arthur was good for thirty years yet, he being about my own age—that is to say forty—and I believed that in that time I could easily have the active part of the population of that day ready and eager for an event which should be the first of its kind in the history of the world—a rounded and complete governmental revolution without bloodshed—the result to be a republic. Well, I may as well confess, though I do feel ashamed when I think of it, i was beginning to have a base hankering to be its first president myself yes there was more or less human nature in me i found that out clarence was with me as concerned the revolution but in a modified way his idea was a republic without privileged orders but with a hereditary royal family at the head of it instead of an elective chief magistrate He believed that no nation that had ever known the joy of worshipping a royal family could ever be robbed of it and not fade away and die of melancholy. I urged that kings were dangerous. He said, Then have cats. He was sure that a royal family of cats would answer every purpose. They would be as useful as any other royal family. They would know as much. (laughs) They would have the same virtues and the same treacheries, the same disposition to get up shindies with other royal cats— They would be laughably vain and absurd, and never know it. They would be wholly inexpensive. Finally, they would have as sound a divine right as any other royal house, and Tom-seventh, or Tom-eleventh, or Tom-fourteenth, by the grace of God-King, would sound as well as it would when applied to the ordinary royal tomcat with tights on. And as a rule, said he in his neat modern English, The character of these cats would be considerably above the character of the average king, and this would be an immense moral advantage to the nation, for the reason that a nation always models its morals after its monarchs. The worship of royalty being founded in unreason, these graceful and harmless cats would easily become as sacred as any other royalties, and indeed more so because it would presently be noticed that they hanged nobody— beheaded nobody, imprisoned nobody, inflicted no cruelties or injustices of any sort, and so must be worthy of a deeper love and reverence than the customary human king, and would certainly get it. The eyes of the whole harried world would soon be fixed upon this humane and gentle system, and the royal butchers would presently begin to disappear. Their subjects would fill the vacancies with cattlings from our own royal house. We should become a factory. We should supply the thrones of the world.' Within forty years all Europe would be governed by cats, and we should furnish the cats. The reign of universal peace would begin, then, to end no more forever. Meow ow Wow! Hang him, I supposed he was in earnest, and was beginning to be persuaded by him, until he exploded that cat-howl and startled me almost out of my clothes. But he never could be in earnest. He didn't know what it was. He had pictured a distinct and perfectly rational and feasible improvement upon constitutional monarchy, but he was too feather-headed to know it, or care anything about it, either. I was going to give him a scolding, but Sandy came flying in at that moment, wild with terror, and so choked with sobs that, for a minute, she could not get her voice. I ran and took her in my arms, and lavished caresses upon her, and said beseechingly, "'Speak, darling, speak! What is it?' Her head fell limp upon my bosom, and she gasped, almost inaudibly, "'Hello, Central!' "'Quick!' I shouted to Clarence. "'Telephone the King's homeopath to come!' In two minutes I was kneeling by the child's crib, and Sandy was dispatching servants here, there, and everywhere, all over the palace. I took in the situation almost at a glance. Membranus croup! I bent down and whispered, "'Wake up, sweetheart! Hello, Central!' she opened her soft eyes languidly and made out to say papa that was a comfort she was far from dead yet i sent for preparations of sulphur i rousted out the croup kettle myself for i don't sit down and wait for doctors when sandy or the child is sick i knew how to nurse both of them and had had experience this little chap had lived in my arms a good part of its small life and often i could soothe away its troubles and get it to laugh through the tear dews on its eyelashes when even its mother couldn't. Sir Lancelot, in his richest armor, came striding along the great hall now on his way to the stockboard. He was president of the stockboard, and occupied the Siege Perilous, which he had bought of Sir Galahad, for the stockboard consisted of the knights of the round table, and they used the round table for business purposes now. Seats at it were worth, well, you would never believe the figure, so it is no use to state it. Sir Lancelot was a bear, and he had put up a corner in one of the new lines, and was just getting ready to squeeze the shorts today. but what of that? He was the same old Lancelot, and when he glanced in as he was passing the door and found out that his pet was sick, that was enough for him. Bulls and bears might fight it out their own way for all of him. He would come right in here and stand by little Hello Central for all he was worth, and that was what he did." He shied his helmet into the corner, and in half a minute he had a new wick in the alcohol lamp and was firing up the croup kettle. By this time Sandy had built a blanket canopy over the crib, and everything was ready. Sir Lancelot got up steam. He and I loaded up the kettle with unslaked lime and carbolic acid, with a touch of lactic acid added thereto, then filled the thing up with water and inserted the steam-pout under the canopy. Everything was ship-shaped now, and we sat down on either side of the crib to stand our watch. Sandy was so grateful and so comforted that she charged a couple of church with willow-bark and sumac tobacco for us and told us to smoke as much as we pleased. It couldn't get under the canopy, and she was used to smoke, being the first lady in the land who had ever seen a cloud blown— "'Well, there couldn't be a more contented or comfortable sight than Sir Launcelot in his noble armour sitting in gracious serenity at the end of a yard of snowy churchwarden. He was a beautiful man, a lovely man, and was just intended to make a wife and children happy. But, of course, (sighs) Guinevere—however, it's no use to cry over what's done and can't be helped—' Well, he stood watch and watch with me, right straight through for three days and nights, till the child was out of danger. Then he took her up in his great arms and kissed her, with his plumes falling about her golden head, then laid her softly in Sandy's lap again, and took his stately way down the vast hall between the ranks of admiring men-at-arms and menials, and so disappeared. And no instinct warned me that I should never look upon him again in this world." "'Lord, what a world of heartbreak it is! "'The doctors said we must take the child away, "'if we would coax her back to health and strength again, "'and she must have sea air. "'So we took a man-of-war and a suite of two hundred and sixty persons "'and went cruising about, "'and after a fortnight of this we stepped ashore on the French coast, "'and the doctors thought it would be a good idea "'to make something of a stay there. "'The little king of that region offered us his hospitalities, "'and we were glad to accept.' If we had had as many conveniences as he lacked, we should have been plenty comfortable enough. Even as it was, we made out very well, in his queer old castle, by the help of comforts and luxuries from the ship. At the end of a month I sent the vessel home for fresh supplies and for news. We expected her back in three or four days. She would bring me, along with other news, the result of a certain experiment which I had been starting— It was a project of mine to replace the tournament with something which might furnish an escape for the extra steam of the chivalry keep those bucks entertained and out of mischief and at the same time preserve the best thing in them which was their hearty spirit of emulation i had had a choice band of them in private training for some time and the date was now arriving for their first public effort this experiment was baseball in order to give the thing vogue from the start and place it out of the reach of criticism, I chose my nines by rank, not capacity. There wasn't a knight in either team who wasn't a sceptered sovereign. As for material of this sort, there was a glut of it always around, Arthur. You couldn't throw a brick in any direction and not cripple a king. Of course, I couldn't get these people to leave off their armor, they wouldn't do that when they bathed. They consented to differentiate the armor so that a body could tell one team from the other, but that was the most they would do so one of the teams wore chainmail ulsters, and the other wore plate-armor made of my new Bessemer steel. Their practice in the field was the most fantastic thing I ever saw. Being ball-proof, they never skipped out of the way, but stood still and took the result. When a Bessemer was at the bat and a ball hit him, it would bound a hundred and fifty yards sometimes, and when a man was running and threw himself on his stomach to slide to his base, it was like an ironclad coming into port.' At first I appointed men of no rank to act as umpires, but I had to discontinue that. These people were no easier to please than other nines. The umpire's first decision was usually his last. They broke him in two with a bat, and his friends toted him home on a shutter. When it was noticed that no umpire ever survived a game, umpiring got to be unpopular. So I was obliged to appoint somebody whose rank and lofty position under the government would protect him. Here are the names of the nines: Bessemers, King Arthur, King Lot of Lothian, King of North Gallus, King Marsil, King of Little Britain, King Labor, King Pelham of Lissengies, King Bagdemagus, King Ptolemy Lafeintus, Ulsters, Emperor Lucius, King Logris, King Markald of Ireland, King Morganor, King Mark of Cornwall, King Nentris of Garlot. King Melodius of Linus, King of the Lake, the Saudon of Syria. Umpire, Clarence. The first public game would certainly draw 50,000 people, and for solid fun would be worth going round the world to see. Everything would be favorable. It was balmy and beautiful spring weather now, and nature was all tailored out in her new clothes. End of chapter 40.
0: So a lot has happened. Uh, Hank Morgan has married Sandy, and they have a daughter named Hello Central, which gets explained later. Hello Central being, of course, what you would say on an old phone line when you had to talk to a central operator before placing a call. You heard the joke about women voting, how he was about to give everyone the vote, women included, and then made the crack that a middle-aged woman was way smarter than her 20-year-old son. It's it's just another thing. Remember, this is uh, 30 years before women were allowed to vote. So, even even making a joke where it was acceptable for a middle-aged woman to vote was really kind of, you know, scandalous, radical, <laughs> radical notion that uh, that we would ever be allowed to do something as important as vote. You know, what with us doing really unimportant things like Raising the children and keeping households running—it's just shocking. Also, in case in case the description didn't make sense, uh, a croup kettle. I'll I'll post a link to a croup kettle uh, illustration from an old medical manual. Uh, it was basically a vaporizer with a, a large uh, a large basin that you could put. Um, he, he was putting different forms of, of acid in there. Uh, but it's it's the same idea as putting kind of menthol or, or something like that into a vaporizer nowadays. The difference was it had a long tapered spout that came off the top. And so when they talked about making a tent over the crib and then inserting that kind of like a, a funnel, you know reverse funnel into the crib under, the, the tent, it was to give the child an, enough uh, vapor to help bring down the, the creepy cough. And for those of you who are young and have, have never actually seen a child with a creepy cough or uh, or a whooping cough or any of those things, it's really, truly really terrifying to uh, hear your child bark like a seal. It's, it's just awful. So, you know, Sandy was not being... Uh, weak and hysterical. Everybody got very nervous when a child got sick like that. This is before antibiotics and uh, and a lot of modern, I mean, he was calling for the homeopath. Um, so there's that, and then there's uh, the baseball team with all the knights on it, which I just, I just love. And good old Lancelot head of the stock market. Oh, times have changed. That is pretty much the end of the joking from here on out so chapter 41 you're going to learn a little bit more about hank morgan's relationship with sandy and you're going to find out what has happened and what continues to happen while they are out on the boat trying to keep hello central
1: healthy so without wasting any more time here we go with chapter 41 the interdict however my attention was suddenly snatched from such matters our child began to lose ground again and we had to go to sitting up with her her case became so serious we couldn't bear to allow anybody to help in this service so we two stood watch and watch day in and day out ah sandy what a right heart she had how simple and genuine and good she was she was a flawless wife and mother and yet I had married her for no other particular reasons except that by the customs of chivalry she was my property until some knight should win her from me in the field. She had hunted Britain over for me, had found me at the hanging bout outside of London, and had straightway resumed her old place at my side in the placidest way and as of right. I was a New Englander, and, in my opinion, this sort of partnership would compromise her sooner or later. She couldn't see how but I cut argument short, and we had a wedding. Now, I didn't know I was drawing a prize, yet that was what I did draw. Within the twelve months, I became her worshipper, and ours was the dearest and perfectest comradeship that ever was. People talk about beautiful friendships between two persons of the same sex. What is the best of that sort as compared with the friendship of man and wife, where the best impulses and highest ideals of both are the same? There is no place for comparison between the two friendships. The one is earthly, the other divine. In my dreams, along at first, I still wandered thirteen centuries away, and my unsatisfied spirit went calling and harking all up and down the unreplying vacancies of a vanished world. Many a time Sandy heard that imploring cry come from my lips in my sleep. With a grand magnanimity she saddled that cry of mine upon our child— conceiving it to be the name of some lost darling of mine. It touched me to tears, and it also nearly knocked me off my feet, too, when she smiled up in my face for an earned reward and played her quaint and pretty surprise upon me. The name of one who was dear to thee is here preserved, here made holy, and the music of it will abide always in our ears. Now thou'lt kiss me, as knowing the name I have given the child." but I didn't know it all the same. I hadn't an idea in the world, but it would have been cruel to confess it and spoil her pretty game, so I never let on, but said, "'Yes, I know, sweetheart, how dear and good it is of you to, but I want to hear these lips of yours, which are also mine, utter it first, then its music will be perfect.' Pleased to the marrow, she murmured, "'Hello, Central!' I didn't laugh, I'm always thankful for that, but the strain ruptured every cartilage in me, and for weeks afterward I could hear my bones clack when I walked. She never found out her mistake. The first time she heard that form of salute used at the telephone she was surprised and not pleased, but I told her I had given order for it, that henceforth and forever the telephone must always be invoked with that reverent formality in perpetual honor and remembrance of my lost friend and her small namesake.' This was not true, but it answered. Well, during two weeks and a half we watched by the crib, and in our deep solicitude we were unconscious of any world outside of that sick room. Then our reward came. The center of the universe turned the corner and began to mend. Grateful? It isn't the term. There isn't any term for it you know that yourself if you've watched your child through the valley of the shadow and seen it come back to life and sweep night out of the earth with one all-illuminating smile that you could cover with your hand. Why, we were back in this world in one instant. Then we looked the same startled thought into each other's eyes at the same moment, more than two weeks gone, and that ship not back yet. In another minute I appeared in the presence of my train. They had been steeped in troubled bodings all this time, their faces showed it— I called an escort, and we galloped five miles to a hilltop overlooking the sea. Where was my great commerce that so lately had made these glistening expanses populous and beautiful with its white-winged flocks? Vanished, every one, not a sail from verge to verge, not a smoke-bank, just a dead and empty solitude in place of all that brisk and breezy life. I went swiftly back, saying not a word to anybody. I told Sandy this ghastly news— WE COULD IMAGINE NO EXPLANATION THAT WOULD BEGIN TO EXPLAIN. HAD THERE BEEN AN INVASION, AN EARTHQUAKE, A PESTILENCE? HAD THE NATION BEEN SWEPT OUT OF EXISTENCE? BUT GUESSING WAS PROFITLESS. I MUST GO AT ONCE. I borrowed THE KING'S NAVY, A SHIP NO BIGGER THAN A STEAM LAUNCH, AND WAS SOON READY. THE PARTING, (laughs) YES, THAT WAS HARD. AS I WAS DEVOURING THE CHILD WITH LAST KISSES, IT BRISKED UP AND JABBERED OUT ITS VOCABULARY. The first time in more than two weeks and it made fools of us for joy the darling mispronunciations of childhood dear me there's no music that can touch it and how one grieves when it wastes away and dissolves into correctness knowing it will never visit his bereaved ear again well how good it was to be able to carry that gracious memory away with me i approached england the next morning with a wide highway of salt water all to myself There were ships in the harbor at Dover, but they were naked as to sails, and there was no sign of life about them. It was Sunday, yet at Canterbury the streets were empty. Strangest of all, there was not even a priest in sight, and no stroke of a bell fell upon my ear. The mournfulness of death was everywhere. I couldn't understand it. At last in the further edge of that town I saw a small funeral procession, just a family and a few friends following a coffin, no priest a funeral without bell, book, or candle. There was a church there close at hand, but they passed it by weeping and did not enter it. I glanced up at the belfry, and there hung the bell, shrouded in black, and its tongue tied back. Now I knew. Now I understood the stupendous calamity that had overtaken England. Invasion? Invasion is a triviality to it. It was the interdict. I asked no questions. I didn't need to ask any. The church had struck. The thing for me to do was to get into a disguise and go warily. One of my servants gave me a suit of clothes, and when we were safe beyond the town I put them on, and from that time I travelled alone. I could not risk the embarrassment of company. A miserable journey, a desolate silence everywhere, even in London itself. Traffic had ceased. Men did not talk or laugh, or go in groups, or even in couples— They moved aimlessly about each man by himself, with his head down, and woe and terror in his heart. The tower showed recent war scars. Verily, much had been happening. Of course, I meant to take the train to Camelot. Train! Why, the station was as vacant as a cavern! I moved on. The journey to Camelot was a repetition of what I had already seen, the Monday and the Tuesday different in no way from the Sunday— I arrived far in the night. From being the best electric lighted town in the kingdom and the most like a recumbent sun of anything you ever saw, it was become simply a blot, a blot upon darkness. That is to say, it was darker and solider than the rest of the darkness, and so you could see it a little better. It made me feel as if maybe it was symbolical, a sort of sign but the church was going to keep the upper hand now and snuff out all my beautiful civilization just like that. I found no life stirring in the somber streets. I groped my way with a heavy heart. The vast castle loomed black upon the hilltop, not a spark visible upon it. The drawbridge was down. The great gate stood wide. I entered without challenge, my own heels making the only sound I heard, and it was sepulchral enough in those huge vacant courts." end of chapter 41
0: all right so hank morgan is in trouble but going back to the beginning of the chapter remember when he was making fun of sandy in the beginning and i said i know i know he's taking cheap shots at the woman you just need to hang in there with me this is mark twain talking about his wife he adored his wife and she was his editor he handed his books over to her, and she's the one who helped him make them palatable for the general public. He had enormous respect for her, and he loved his daughters. And towards the end of his life, he lost, he lost his wife. He lost, I think, his oldest daughter. It was, it was bad. It was hard times. And especially when you hear him talking about Sandy, when he's, he's allowing Hank Morgan to talk about Sandy, you can hear the devotion and the pride and the completion of himself that he is talking about when he talks about Sandy. And it's just, it, you know, it makes it all worth it. It also makes the rest of the book that much more painful. Because, as you can see, all of Hank Morgan's blusteriness and his, uh, to, for lack of a better term, holier than thou attitude towards his knowledge, in his ability to make things like guns and telephones and telegraphs and railroads and all of this stuff, he he has a different religion. He's it's he's worshiping this industrial technology that he's brought back with him. And his attitude towards the church has, as we have said, not been particularly positive. And you kind of can't do that without expecting something to happen. You know, it's like those, um, those punching dolls that we used to have. I don't know if they still make them, but the kind of large rubber balloon dolls that had a sandy bottom, a weighted bottom, so you could punch the clown face (laughs) and it would bounce right back up like a weeble, but, you know, big enough for a child to hit. Um, It's gonna bounce back. And especially when you've changed a society so radically, you can't expect that all to have been bred out of them during their lifetime. This is the same, there's a lot of conversation about why Moses and his people had to wander for 40 years in the desert. And one, I think, very reasonable uh, answer to the question of why 40 years is you have to get rid of the generation of slaves. If If you want to build a nation of free people, the people doing the building have to be people who have grown up in freedom making their decisions themselves not being treated as and believing that they are slaves because otherwise what you get is is the the making of the idol at mount sinai you know you get the people saying oh gosh oh we've made, we've blown it we've blown it we need to pray to a different god that's what we'll do we'll pray to a different god and everything will be fine just like you know there's a new pharaoh so pray to the new pharaoh Hank Morgan is dealing with the same generation of people that he was dealing with when he showed up. Due to length considerations and ease of use with technical equipment, I am breaking this podcast in half right here. So we will pick up with 188 part two as soon as this clicks off.
1: Thanks.